You're listening to the Limoist between the podcasts, Jason Halsley, doing another exploration into the works of Rudolf Steiner. It's working for me. What I respect, you just can't see. Welcome to the next Exploring Rudy Limitless podcast. Breaking with the form now by beginning on a walk spontaneously and impulsively because I was listening to From Limestone to Lucifer, which is a lecture he gave to some builders on a uh, anthroposophical building project not sure which movie it was the Gertiana part 2 and that was 1923 so very soon before he died and the last part part 12 or day 12 of the lectures Rudolf answers a question about Lucifer Ahriman Christ and <clears throat> towards the end he he uh, advocates for one religion on the basis that Christ is the being of the sun and the sun shines on everyone equally and on predict familiar basis that separate religions causes all kinds of war and strife uh, so essentially he's advocating for one world religion based around sun worship he doesn't use the term worship so that might be taking it one step too far or further than he did but nonetheless all too familiar from the new age literature it seems as though in this regard at least Rudy's anthroposophy is, is compatible with the, the agenda as it's been somewhat exposed over the years. Anyway, it's the first time I was listening to Steiner where it rang alarm bells and it seems to have coincided with the expected Steiner disenchantment beginnings of it anyway, although this podcast will continue to explore parts that I find vital and compelling, but I just thought I'd mention it at the start that I'm sure that you all were anticipating at some point or another that the exegesis would start to diverge into an expose. And, uh, well, we'll see if I get my hands on a biography and if I continue, uh, we'll see what stones I can turn over. But I have definitely, the honeymoon period seems to have ended. I was trying to listen to another later lecture's Awakening to Community, which I thought, based on the subject, would be interesting. But I found it very dull, and it was also from 1923. And I started to find 
the tone of reverence in Dale's voice as he's reading, rather grating and eye roll inducing. But maybe it was just a bad day for both Rudy and Dale. I'm sure that I will continue to find gems in here and continue to discover things of great value in the Steiner opus, even as I begin to identify some fake trinkets in there. Overall, surprising how many people who listen to me are interested in Steiner. I can times that by at least 10, to include those who haven't contacted me or mentioned it. And then there's those who are becoming interested, developing an interest because of my podcast. So what has occurred to me is that I'm uh, creating a rehabilitation centre for anthroposophists or aspiring anthroposophists or or partial anthroposophists to uh, enter into and see the ways in which they've been influenced by these teachings and help them to extricate themselves from that crystal maze of anthroposophy which would be consistent with all the other projects I've done from Strieber through Deruta, Crowley, Hollywood, etc. Seems to be the business that I'm in is saving souls from cultural spiderwebs and uh, there's no way around the fact that anthroposophy is a cultural spiderweb however well built and substantial it may be and even relatively benign it still catches flies souls because any kind of body of knowledge creates a matrix that potentially creates a bardo realm a crucial fiction and a belief system that thereby blocks us from a direct experience of reality
So before I get into the meat and the potatoes of this latest Steiner exploration, as in start uh, responding to Dale Brunsfeld's readings of certain Steiner works, I wanted to mention the thing about bees. The thing about bees is that uh, well, I've always had a thing about bees. Uh, maybe I can't even say almost one of my very earliest memories is of sitting in the kitchen at High Hall, the house I grew up in, uh, in the next to the window in the sun, sun coming through the window. Um, the window must have been open according to this memory, and a bee flew straight into my ear. I think my right ear. Uh, hard to say how true that memory is or how accurate got no reason to doubt it but it just hangs there in a void don't remember it being any kind of anecdote whether I got stung or whether anyone even knew about it I just have this memory I was drinking milky coffee at the time which is kind of strange too that my mother would have given a five or six year old coffee I assume I wasn't any younger but I couldn't have been any older because we left that house when I was six. Um, the other parts of the dream, I mean, <laughs> Freudian slip, the memory is um, that I was thinking about infinity at the time. God only knows. Now, it's been so long, needless to say, that's about 47 years ago. And I've thought about that memory so many times since then that I really can't say uh, what it's based on anymore but anyway that's the memory that I remember remembering a young child sitting in the kitchen in the sun thinking about infinity and a bee flies into his ear I'm sure there's some meta meaning in there and certainly it corresponds with something that Steiner said about bees which is well a couple of things one is is that although individual bees are not intelligent, their brains are too small for that. The the collective intelligence of the bee of the hive and of the of the bee species, if you will, is extremely advanced, considerably more than human beings. And um the other thing he said was that uh the uh, activity of a hive, of a beehive which is to say the building of the honeycombs out of the wax and then the excreting, if that's the word, or the vomiting of the, of the uh, honey into the combs is very similar to the human brain, at least when the human brain is functioning optimally, which of course is pretty much never. Um, so there you have it. Uh, bees, according to Steiner, pertain to cosmic wisdom because they've been a symbol of the divine for a long time you'll see how many coats of arms have bees there um, and uh, this has some direct hands-on mundane correspondence because my lifelong interest in an affinity for bees which is uh, of course, a number of dreams. I dreamt I was a bee once. Uh, 
riding the wind, uh, becoming the wind, tiny bee on the wind, became fully inseparable from the wind, and it was the height, one of the the most transcendental dreams I've had. And I woke up from that dream in the existential agony of Transu, if that's how you pronounce it, of a, a man who dreamed he was a bee, wondering if he was a bee, now dreaming he was a man. Very archetypal stuff, that. Uh, and then, um, periods somewhat after that in Guatemala, I was swimming in the lake a lot, and I would always find drowning bees when I would swim, and I would, I would almost always rescue them, I would put them on my hand and swim back to shore and put them on the pier and watch them dry in the sun and fly off and that became a practice I had which gave me a great deal of pleasure of course I felt virtuous but I'd say there was a deeper satisfaction from it than mere uh, egotistical glow of virtue as a sense of uh, helping and supporting my kindred I am of the bee tribe apparently don't know how that extends into some kind of extraterrestrialism which Whitley of course would want to do that doesn't need to but how it extends in the other direction to the worldly, the earthly is that I have lately, ever since I well, more before that, but particularly since I knew I was going to be moving to Galicia thought that I would want to keep bees in the future and um, recently while I was listening to the Steiner audiobook on bees not literally but during that period I came upon uh, a bunch of bee hives in boxes and realised that I've been coming across them for a while in Galicia I did wonder if that's what they were but Somehow they didn't look quite what I'd expected them to look like because, of course, they just cobble things together here in Galicia. Anyway, this time I did approach them. There were many of them, a few dozen of them, and I saw that, in fact, they were bee containers for the making of honey and the harvesting of honey. And uh, that's the other thing that Steiner talks about, which is very interesting to me, which is he says that honey is the equivalent for adults of mother's milk for babies, that it nourishes our bones, uh, our tissue, that it gives us energy and life, and um, helps us to optimize our systems, even as an evolutionary aid, although he didn't use that rather fancy term. Uh, and I have got some local honey here, I don't know how local, probably not as local as these particular bee hives but um, certainly honey is uh, all around us where I'm living now and of course that ties in to the latest blog post which I just put up a few hours ago that's why I thought I would start with bees that's the blog post on the wings of a bee Echo Homo Naturalis about Devashana, but more precisely about my experience with Devashana and the the hive soul. Let's say that uh, 
he is part of, that we are part of, and that is becoming more um, productive, uh, more visible, more tangible, more effective, resilient, robust, as the honeycombs are formed, as the honey gathers, and as the pollen gets uh, transported, transformed, and excreted. However that works. This is the whole uh, process of bees, flowers, wax, and honey was one that I wrote a children's book about many years ago. I think it was called Joseph's Dreaming School, something like that. This is about the life of bees as well as dreaming. And um, I do think it is a, a, a very rich metaphor for what we as human beings are here to do. Bees make wax and honey. Human beings make the equivalent energetically, which we don't really have a name for it. Love doesn't cover it. But it will have to do for now. As long as we are dealing with the spiritual world in general, while learning about our immortality, as long as this is how we encounter the soul spiritual sphere, there is no possibility for anything impure to emerge. However, as soon as we are in contact with specific dead souls, there is always a relationship between the individual dead soul and our blood and nervous system strange as that sounds. In other words, the dead live, so to speak, in the drives and instincts that are found in the blood and nervous system and that can awaken our baser instincts. This poses a danger only for those who have not purified themselves through self-discipline. This point must be emphasized because it is the reason why the Old Testament practically forbids any contact with the dead that prohibition was instituted not because it was considered a sin to communicate with the dead if the contact is maintained in the right way, but for the reason I've, just, I've explained just now. Of course, we can ignore the methods of modern spiritism in this context. Essentially, it is not a sin to maintain spiritual contact with the dead. But when our thoughts in our interactions with the dead are not pure and soulful, then our baser passions can easily be incited. These passions are not fired up by the dead, but by the element in which they live. After all, what we regard as belonging to the animal kingdom here is the basic element in which the dead live in the spiritual world. And when this realm of the dead spills into us, so to speak, it can easily turn and become base in us, even though in the spiritual world it is actually a higher realm. That last thing is one that's particularly hard for me to grasp, that what is a lower realm here, the animal kingdom, is somehow a higher realm on the other side. I'm not entirely sure if he means higher in relation to the, the human realm of the living, uh, because it is uh, a non-physical realm relatively in the realm of the dead or if he means higher in relation to the dead themselves I think that the former perhaps 
Um, but yes, it's not something I can think about very easily. The main point here, however, is one that I find quite compelling and somehow intuitively or sensorily right, which is, is that the dead exist in the realm equivalent to what we think of or know of as the animal kingdom here and that this pertains to the animal kingdom being the matrix of physicality and biology out of which human bodies are made Steiner doesn't say that but I extrapolate that as a, as a helpful connective tissue and because of this the realm of the dead uh, is an elemental realm in which we enter into or as we enter into it via communication with the dead we become susceptible to this, the uh, stirring up of those qualities within ourselves that correspond with our animal natures so our baser instincts our more basic instincts and insofar as we haven't refined tamed transmuted, purified those instincts within ourselves and raised them up to a higher level interestingly uh, the, what Steiner said about bees here is coming to mind which is that bees don't have sex most of them that the way that the, the hive functions its uh, efficacy and its you know, cosmic harmony requires a relinquishing on the part of the majority of the bees, the worker bees, of the sex function. Not that I'm saying that they make vows and give it up, but somehow that's part of the configuration of the hive and how it works. And so traditionally we do have for human beings this literal but also symbolic act of giving up the sex drive and the sex instinct to God by a vow of charity. Edit. I meant chastity. It was a Freudian slip, hoping to slip through a loophole. Um, which would be a literalization of something that can also, and is perhaps better, being much more subtle, which is a... It's a... It's a... More than sublimation, it's a, it's a transubstantiation of the libido. And that without this kind of refinement, entering into contact with the dead means potentially becoming prey to the influence of the beast. It is very important to keep this in mind, and it must be pointed out when we're talking about communicating with the so-called dead, because it is an occult fact. Talking about contact with the so-called dead also allows us to describe properly what the spiritual world is like. For what we experience in our contact with the dead shows clearly how different the spiritual world is from the physical one here.
To begin with, I would like to tell you something that will seem irrelevant to those who have not yet fully developed their clairvoyance. But if we think about it, we will find it is very relevant, because it is connected with real life. Once we have developed clairvoyance and are communicating with the dead in the right way, we will see why people generally know so little about the dead, know so little based on direct perception. Strange and even grotesque as it sounds, to communicate with the dead in the right way, we must completely reverse the way we usually interact with others here on earth. For example, when you talk face to face with someone, you are the one speaking. You know that you're talking, that the words are coming out of your mouth. When the other person replies or speaks to you, you know that the words are coming from that person, out of that person's mouth. However, when we are communicating with the dead, this is all completely reversed. Everything is the other way around when we're communicating with the dead. That is, when we're communicating with a dead person, we hear our words coming from his or her mouth, as though the dead person were saying them. This is because the dead person inspires the words in our soul, and when he or she speaks to us, the words come out of our own soul. Clearly this is very different from what we are used to here on earth. Here we're used to hearing the words we say come from us. But in communicating with the dead, we have to get used to hearing our words coming from them, and their words coming from our own soul. Such an abstract explanation of the matter is, of course, easy to understand. But to really get used to this kind of reversed communication is tremendously difficult. And strange as it sounds, it is largely because we are not used to this reversal that we don't perceive the presence of the dead, even though they are always there, always with us. Generally, we think that everything emerging from our soul originates with us. We don't bother to ask whether something we believe to come from within us actually came to us as an inspiration from the spiritual world around us. On the whole, we prefer to interpret everything in the context we're familiar with, namely our physical world. If we receive something from outside, we attribute it to another person and we could not be more wrong. This is just one of the peculiarities of communicating with the so-called dead. And the one thing I want you to remember above all is that in the spiritual world, everything is the other way around from what we are used to here on earth. We have to turn everything around. Once you realize this, you will have an important insight necessary for understanding the spiritual world an insight that is, nonetheless, extremely difficult to apply concretely in any individual case. For example, this concept of a complete reversal is also important for properly understanding the physical world, permeated, as it is, everywhere by the spiritual. It is because science and the popular mind lack this concept that we do not have a spiritual understanding of the physical world and this lack is particularly obvious when people try very hard to understand the world. 
Sometimes one just has to disregard such futile efforts. For example, a few years ago, starting from certain Goethean ideas, I talked about the outer human physical organism to a large number of our friends at a general meeting in Berlin. I tried to explain that to understand the physical shape of the head, we must see it as a complete reversal of the rest of the body. Nobody understood what I was talking about, namely that a bone from our arms would have to be turned inside out like a glove in order to turn into a skull bone. Granted, this is difficult to comprehend, but we cannot really know anything about anatomy unless we develop such ideas. I'm mentioning this only as an example, in passing. It may help you understand what I've told you today about communicating with the dead. You see, what I've just explained is always going on. Everyone is continuously communicating with the dead, including all of you as you're sitting here listening to me. People generally don't know about this because the communication with the dead happens in the subconscious mind. After all, our clairvoyant consciousness does not magically create something new. It only brings to our awareness what already exists in the spiritual world, namely the fact that we are all in constant communication with the dead. This uh, interpretation or understanding, as I understand it anyway, makes the idea of communication a kind of misnomer, I think, because if it's constant communication, then it's not really right to call it communication, it's existence. Uh, existence on this living plane is a somehow reflecting and reflected by the existence of the dead, uh, the ancestors and those who came before us who aren't ancestors but that we have connections with there's a continuum there and the way in which the communication happens according to Steiner is not something coming from the outside in as a sound that we hear and that goes through the into the ears and then into the brain and then gets translated into into information but kind of the opposite something that emerges from inside the cells of our blood which is to say the subtlest realm of the physical is the gateway to the non-physical or what we think of as the non-physical you know it's a, another layer in the onion of a of a metaphysical dimension which the the ordinary physical is is part of uh, and vice versa they're complementary but they're somehow invisible to each other or at least on, on this side it seems as though the dead have more sensory access to this realm even though they don't have senses it would appear to be through our own senses um, they're invisible anyway t to one another to the extent that they're the opposite of each other so just like the inside of a glove is is invisible to the hand that's in the glove because it's too close to it to see it. The glove has to be removed and turned inside out to see uh, the shape of it and then it appears to us as in the same shape as we are. It's the shape of a hand. 
um, and that this seems to extend well according to Steiner this extends to everything as he's talking about the anatomy and the bones and whatnot, that the head is is the turned inside outness of the rest of the body let's say to paraphrase um, and although I can't comprehend this I can only talk about it as a way to comprehend it as an alternative to understanding it just articulate it um, it does seem to correspond with my thesis in Prisoner Infinity in some strange um, mysterious way obscure way occult way even insofar as we can see the symptomology what happens if we don't recognize that the higher deeper planes of existence aren't simply extensions of this one as in some kind of cosmic hierarchy but also inversions of it that as we expand outward into the higher and the deeper and the subtler realms of being it's not just built on top of this one it's also inside of this one so in order to perceive it we have to go inward and turn what's inside outside inside out and then we can see it we ourselves have to become turned inside out to see the kingdom that's within us it's very paradoxical but if we don't do this then we we project our intuitive or even worse our logically formulated ideas about the infinite outwards as a never ex never ending ever extending continuity uh, as in eternity is a very very long period of time or infinity is a very very big number both of these concepts are contradictory because any number is not infinity and any amount of time is not eternity therefore a split second is as close to eternity as billions and billions and billions upon billions of aeons neither is any closer to eternity than the other and ditto the number one is as close to infinity as the largest number that you could hypothesize right that's logically unassailable so the only way to access these kind of experiences is A, by going inward and B, by allowing a sort of yin-yang complementarity between one realm and the other which in a weird way reduces infinity to the here and the now because as it extends outward it flips over and goes inward like an infinity loop so it's contained it's infinite but contained um, and the infinite natures in terms of there are infinite variations as one moves back and forth between inner and outer there's a constant interaction between the inside and the outside which creates an infinite variety of responses I just made up that last bit because I don't know how to talk about this anymore
one such concrete form that I wanted to talk about especially is that we need to let the dead have a say in our life. In addition, it is essential that how we live together is shaped by the differences we feel among ourselves based on age, by the realization that we change as we age. On that basis, we can then develop faith in our life as a whole. After all, God does not stop revealing Himself to us once we are out of our twenties. In earlier times, that revelation was a physical one, but now we must feel our way to God through spiritual science. For this, it is essential that we believe in the gifts from the divine spiritual world and are supported inwardly through our whole life by the encouraging sense that as we get older, we can bring something to the divine spiritual realm that it can then accept differently than it did before. As you can imagine, it will make a great difference to be able to approach the future with such hope and expectation. Indeed, our whole way of living together, our social structures, will be as though covered with a new soul-spiritual aura an aura we urgently need as we prepare for the future. All this is of the utmost importance. Therefore, let yourself fully feel and absorb how urgently changes must come. Our time demands that many things change. In particular, we must let go of our old hypocritical way of seeing things and instead see them for what they really are. It's pointless to deceive ourselves with lies about anything. And now I'd like to talk about one such self-deception in particular. These days, many people claim to revere and worship not the various hierarchies, the angels, archangels, and so on, but what they call, quote, my God, close quote. And they prize the pride themselves on what they call humanity's great progress in having arrived at monotheism, the faith in one God. However, we cannot help but wonder who people are really turning to in their attempts to establish a concrete relationship to the spiritual world, and who they mean by my God. Whether Catholic or Protestant, when we talk about God, we all refer only to what our consciousness can actually comprehend, namely, to one of two things, our guardian angel or our own I, capital. That is, in actuality, we are worshipping our guardian angel. Each of us has one with the task to protect us and calling it God. Or, we are worshipping our own I, all the while deceiving ourselves because everyone has his or her unique angel, and we call all of them, or our own unique I, by the same name, that of God. In this context, it's important to remember that the one word whose origin we don't know, despite all our research, is that very word God. There are a number of things in here, whether I can weave them together. The first is, is that aging itself is a a process of transmutation, transformation, or just change, if you like. Um, 
that has its specific design just as uh, when a tree grows or a flower blooms and so on there's a natural cycle there uh, there are different stages of growth and as human beings we seem to have lost sight of that I know that as a child and I had a visceral recall of this in my in my 30s when I spent some time alone um, connecting to my past um, I remembered how the age I was during those early years five, six, seven, eight, etc um, had this enormous significance to me that there was a whole different quality to being seven than there had been to six and then again when I became eight that the numbers corresponded with stages or phases or states of being and I guess I would have always assumed it so far as I remembered that correlation uh, as it was some childish fancy really that, that assigned some meaning to numbers that wasn't intrinsic to them but when I remembered this in my 30s I, I knew that it was there was a lot more to it that my consciousness was very different back then and and so it related to those numbers in different ways that seemed theoretical or mental to me now but, but were in fact not were visceral and energetic, spiritual um, so that's the first thing that I'm 53 now and uh, well that's all I can be is 53 I'm going to be turning 54 soon it's very different than being 52 and and so on and um, there really is no substitute for being the, the, the age that, that one is it's uh, there's a state of being that comes with it and so it doesn't make sense to see it merely as time passing and as degeneration heading to old age and death as, uh, like a car that's wearing out uh, that tends to be how we see this I think in fact it's, it's, an, it's an evolution it's a progression and yeah there are different uh, each, each year of growth provides a different context for our relationship with the body and with existence and I want to tie this in then to what he said after that about facing reality and ceasing to lie to ourselves is somehow connected to this um, this need to enhance our experience of ourselves and of our bodies and how I'm at with age I'm beginning to see more and more clearly how my own ideas about the way things ought to be my own mental projections have less and less meaning or weight and less and less ability to interfere with my direct relationship to existence and I think this is echoing something that Deva Shana spoke about on the last Sunday event 
which I just blogged about, uh, Meeting Truth in the Mystical Realm, which is that truth is a bodily experience, something that the body encounters that has very little to do with information or facts. I think there is a correlation um, because there are physical facts and um, about the body, of course, the anatomy and the physical nature and stuff. It, there are facts about it. It is a, a system that is objectively real on its own terms anyway and uh, corresponds with mathematics, for example, and geometry. So it's not as though facts are, are irrelevant here. One can certainly, uh, if one loses touch with facts, one can pretty quickly lose touch with bodily reality and vice versa. But the point being that the way we experience truth is through the body and not through facts, not through concepts, not through mental information. And uh, this came up for me very recently when it came to looking at a house and the state of the house in terms of how much work it needed and so on um, and getting what might be interpreted by the mind as bad news about the amount of repair that was needed it seems to be a suitable metaphor for the body as well and the aging body that um, when one is how can I put this I'm not sure how to put this I haven't talked about it before um, but when one is discovering things about the nature of reality it's, it's entirely irrelevant immaterial what one thinks about them whether, whether they conform to one's hopes or expectations or not. Um, what counts is that one is getting closer into contact with reality, finding out more about the true nature of existence. That's all that counts. And from within that context and that framework, everything that one uncovers about reality is good. Unequivocally, it's all good no matter how apparently bad what we discover is the fact of discovering it is good because we're here in existence to have an encounter with reality and to get to the truth of reality of our bodies and our being and uh, the extent to which we can interact with existence is determined by the degree to which we have uh, allowed ourselves to see the true nature of it and vice versa I mean those two things are complementary seeing what's there and interacting with what's there both uh, support each other what doesn't support is our ideas, expectations, fantasies and delusions about reality and what we think it, would, it ought to be all of that can get whittled away by the passage of time The last thing then is about God and the I and um, I think I did have a thought about that but I think it's gone now uh, that's right it was about the universe 
which is um, I realized this last week that the universe itself is a concept that has become a fantasy really it's become a spiritualized concept it's part of our scientific bent um, we believe in science so much that we we now believe in the existence of a universe as something that is measurable and that has to some extent been measured that we have confirmed the existence of a universe and that thereby we have a relationship with it but because we're religiously oriented we have and, and I would say rightly so essentially because we have an, in, in, in an innate felt sense of the transcendental immanent the divine and the eternal and the formless of true reality we project that because it's unconscious we don't have a conscious living relationship with the eternal formless dimension of being we project it unconsciously onto our mental concepts uh, which is in this case the universe and so we now have this idea this language construct that the universe uh, is out there and it is, has wishes for us and it, it gives us things and it wants things for us we say that well the universe wants me to do this now and the universe led me to this and so on and so we've essentially put universe in place of the word God um, but the mistake and the trap in this is, is that meaning and the, the purpose of the word God was as a placekeeper for the eternal formless and the unknowable that is intelligent, is benign, fair enough right, but inherent to that although there is this faith in its benignness um, is our, uh, our relative insignificance compared to it and our inability to comprehend it, perhaps I shouldn't say insignificance because one could extend that to the universe we're not insignificant to God but our relative powerlessness uh, even to understand the nature of God with the universe in contrast we believe that we can understand it we believe we have understood it when we call when we use the word universe in place of God we're reducing God to something that is manifestly finite and that is measurable therefore we're stripping God of what makes God God and by the same token we're rarefying the universe and turning mere physical reality into something transcendental and uh, in fact it, it, it brings home a truth which only just occurred to me which is that we really don't know that there is such a thing as a universe we're simply trusting just as ancient man trusted the priest to tell him about God the nature of God we've trusted in our scientific priest craft uh, institutions CERN etc to, to tell us about the universe and to define it for us and because uh, nature abhors a vacuum we've then filled the vacuum of material reductionism with the religious faith uh, that turns the universe into something that is uh, somehow uh, well we've anthropomorphized it in some way we've turned it into big daddy or big mummy and uh, the reason I had this insight was because 
I've started to relate to the earth in different ways by walking in nature a lot more and starting to recognize a little more the geology of the planet and how one can learn to recognize it and navigate it and relate to it and how vast and mysterious and difficult to comprehend the nature of the earth is, this planet this is even before I started farming so to talk about the universe is so ridiculously premature it's absurd but if we were to say the earth did this and the earth did that or the earth wants this for me it would reveal somehow how how kind of pedestrian but also how pretentious it was because the earth is something tangible and clearly we do not have an experience of the earth as 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 benign when we're trying to grow vegetables well maybe if we're doing it well we might at a certain point we might start to have that but essentially um the earth is nature and we know that nature doesn't simply support us it also will kill us it's a difficult thing to have a relationship with very very difficult because it's it's so far outside of the realm of what we understand as as sentience or kindness or benevolence it's it's too big for that so then of course that goes a billion fold for the universe so i think this relates to how we reduce God to the eye or how, or how we anything that transcends our little ego minds can begin to look to us like God and of course it's much more appealing to us to relate to something small, finite, comprehensible as if it were God and eventually that does come down to our very own eyes which fair enough in the way that Steiner is using that term uh, our core selves our beings our essential natures that is our interface our interaction our connecting point to the source but it isn't the source and if we mistake it for the source we're going to miss out on the full meal to start with we can ask a concrete yet immensely complicated question namely what is the hierarchy of the seraphim, or the dunamis, for example, doing now, in 1918, in our etheric body? Indeed, we can ask this kind of question with just as much justification as we can ask whether it is currently raining in Lugano. In both cases, the answer cannot be found by simply thinking or theorizing about the subject. Rather, we must get at the facts. For example, we would have to send a telegram or letter to find out whether it's currently raining in Lugano. Similarly, we must delve into the facts to find out, for example, what task the spirits of wisdom or the thrones are currently fulfilling in our etheric body. Of course, such questions are extremely complicated, and our answers can only be approximate. This will keep us from becoming proud and arrogant in our striving for true insights and knowledge. In a sense, the higher beings that concern us directly are the ones about whom we can attain some clarity and certainty. They are also the ones we need to understand clearly 
so that we're not asleep in regard to their role in our development. A question to start with, and one that concerns us directly, especially in the present time, asks about the work the angels, the higher beings in the hierarchy immediately above us, are currently doing in our astral body. In our inner organization, the astral body is directly adjacent to our eye, and we thus have every reason to hope that answering the above question will be important to us. Moreover, the angels are the hierarchy directly above ours, and are thus, of all hierarchies, the closest to us. And the hierarchy immediately adjacent to ours can indeed be made palpable and comprehensible. To find out what the angels are doing in our astral body, we must advance to a certain level of clairvoyant perception, so that we can look into our astral body and see what is going on there. In other words, we have to achieve at least a certain level of imaginative perception if we want to answer the question under discussion. Then we will be able to see that the hierarchy of the angels is forming images in our astral body. The angels are both working jointly and also individually, since each one of them has a specific task to fulfill for the person under his charge, and each of us has an angel, as I've explained before. The angels are forming images in our astral body, images that appear and then vanish again in constant ebb and flow, and they do so under the direction of the spirits of form. Without these images we could not develop toward a future that is in line with the intentions of the spirits of form. What the spirits of form want to achieve with us until the end of our earthly development must first be embodied in images, and these images will later be instrumental in transforming humanity. They will then become real. We can see and access the images the angels generate in our astral body once we have developed our thinking to a certain level of clairvoyance. We can then observe these images and see that they are formed according to very specific impulses and principles. Strange as this may sound, we can observe the angels as they are working and see that with their work they are carrying out a definite intention for the social structure of our future life on earth. In other words, they want to generate images in our astral body that will lead to specific social conditions and structures for the human society of the future. Well, I'm in two minds about including these passages about the angels incepting images into astral bodies. Compelling as I find it to be, it seems impossible to corroborate. It seems like a it's a conceptual narrative that is quite similar to a fairy tale essentially. However, I'm torn because I find it quite compelling. I find it somehow, it feels true. But what does that mean? Because, well, I don't really know what 
the angels are. So, and they're the, the most active element in this equation. So, but I, I'm, I'm going to include it anyway, perhaps with some qualifiers that I recorded a few weeks ago. It's about my growing skepticism around Steiner, which uh, I'd forgotten about, but I think maybe I'll put them in at some point, um, or I'll reiterate them. But it occurred to me anyway that whether this was conscious or whether he's acknowledged it somewhere, Steiner, I mean, there's a complementarity between what he's saying here about angels and what he was saying earlier about the dead and the animal kingdom, which is that the human being, my brother used to put it, is situated between the animal and the angel these two hierarchies, the animal kingdom and the angelic kingdom. That's where the human being, the human form, is situated. And it would seem that it's made out of, its body is made out of the animal matter, while its soul is somehow, at least its astral, is informed and guided by the angelic and even protected by it. So, just as he has warned about the lower, more basic instincts needing to be refined insofar as we enter into the elemental realm of the dead because of its correspondence with our own animal natures and our animal bodies. He's now saying that our astral bodies as to say our subtler, more elemental bodies um, are to a degree being incepted with a higher kind of instinct, might even say an intuition, a creative impulse by images, imagery from the angelic hierarchies. And that these images will potentially Um, inspire us, influence us into certain kinds of behavior which will reconfigure human society towards a, a more uh, benign, less bestial, less animalistic, more angelic kind of configuration. Whether or not this is true, it certainly is striking to me the relevance of such a hypothesis to 16 maps of hell and the prevalence of cinematic imagery in the past hundred years of human social progress. To what degree, and I explore this in Prisoner of Infinity as well as 16 maps of hell, to what degree do the images that are incepted in us at early ages and uh, into childhood, teenage years and adulthood by the movies and TV shows and comic books that we adopt as our totems to what degree does that generate the behaviours that configure society uh, there's, there's an, a wealth of evidence that it's a very high degree 
that we are profoundly influenced by mass media entertainment, particularly movies and TV shows, to bring about changes in society, developments of technology and so on, inspired by that imagery. So if there were a plan, a diabolic plan, let's say, or that the fallen spirits of darkness, as Steiner calls it, to uh, counteract the influence of the angels and try and subvert it, to try and hijack uh, that agenda and redirect it down different channels, then movies would be the way to do it. Are the angels having to battle with or against the imagery that's been instilled in us through mass media in order to continue to be able to influence us through their own subtler imagery? Let's say this is all a bit theoretical. Well, the bit about movies and TV shows isn't that that's demonstrable. Um, certainly, I know that many of the dreams I have don't come from movies and TV shows. They do come from an observably or tangibly a higher or deeper realm of my being. They are visionary, and. Uh, but it does seem as though, perhaps increasingly, I don't know, but there's, there's a mishmash, there's a splicing. So these two things are being spliced together. The divine imagery that's coming from, from above and the infernal imagery that's coming from below via the, the social structures. Uh, there is a battle, indeed. A war in heaven and a war in the human body and the human psyche and that battleground is right where you are now. Whether we acknowledge the work of the angels for our future or deny it does not matter at all. The angels are working on our ideals for the future regardless. Their work is guided by a specific principle, namely that in the future nobody shall enjoy happiness in peace as long as there are others who are unhappy. That is, a certain impulse of universal fellowship, of community. Fellowship understood in the right way, that is, prevails in regard to social conditions in the physical world. This is one of the impulses according to which the angels form pictures in our astral body. So that's a very close match with uh, what I proposed in 16 Maps of Hell as the exit from hell being an enhanced sense of community. The second impulse that guides the angels' work concerns the intention they have for our soul, our soul life. Regarding this soul life, the angels want to impress images on our astral body that will, in the future, lead us to see every person we encounter as carrying a spark of the divine concealed within. In other words, the angels are working on changing things. What the angels intend for us 
is that we no longer consider ourselves merely as higher animals and solely on the basis of our physical nature. Instead, in our encounters with others, we are to see in everyone a revelation coming from the divine ground of the world, a revelation in flesh and blood. As a result of what the angels intend, in the future people will only become religious on the basis of seeing everyone as an image of God. And this will not be mere theory, but permeate their everyday life. wonder where we can find evidence of the angel's work, and at this point we can only find it in the sleeping person. The evidence can be seen in the time between our falling asleep and waking up, as well as in waking sleep states. And it is precisely when people in their waking hours sleep through significant events that we can see how the angels are working in their astral body in the way I've described, and their work is taking place whether we want to believe it or not. 
All this seems mysterious and paradoxical. We often consider this or that person to be unworthy of any kind of relationship to the spiritual world, when in reality the individual in question turns out to be merely quite a sleepy head in this incarnation, one who sleeps through everything going on around him or her. However, at the same time, the angel is at work in that person's astral body as part of the whole community of angels that is working on the future of humanity. Since we have already progressed quite far in our development toward freedom, it will depend entirely on us whether we will sleep through the above-described change or move toward it consciously. To move toward this change consciously would mean primarily to study spiritual science. It is offered to us, and all we need to do is study it. In addition, we can support this change by following the suggestions for meditation and other practical directions offered in my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds. Yet, all that is really necessary is to study spiritual science and understand it consciously. You can study spiritual science even without first developing clairvoyance. Spiritual science is accessible to anyone who will not put prejudices in his or her way. So sleepyheads who are tools of angels but they just sleep through it, it kind of leaves out the element of what sleepyheads do with their bodies while they're sleeping, the the kind of self-harm and harm of others that's going on. If one is unconscious of Steiner's idea of the angelic imperative, uh, that's number one. And then I left this passage in primarily because it gave me the first indication of the ground for an for a cult occult cult to form around what Stein is saying the avocation of spiritual science as the only means to become conscious of the angelic uh, imperative prime directive and the reiteration of the need for even the idea that Steiner has that we have to bridge the realm between the human and the angelic or the animal and the angelic perhaps through thinking itself seems questionable although I do think there's some truth in it I think it um, it all seems like the ingredients, the necessary ingredients for a potential dogma-based cult. And, well, presumably that is what's happened, though I have yet to really discover the evidence for anthroposophy as an ongoing cultistic sort of social program it seems pretty inevitable that that must be happening because it's alive and well to this day and it's it's, it's global 
that doesn't mean it's a bad thing just that there are clearly elements here that are already visible at the very inception this is Steiner talking in 1918 of a new dogma called spiritual science or anthroposophy and the usual framing which is if you want to save your soul get right with the angels you need to knuckle down and get with the program yet knowing what the angel is doing in our astral body is only the first step beyond that the most important thing is to realize that at a certain point three changes will occur the first insight is that we can understand the deeper dimensions of our nature with lively active human interest indeed there will come a time we don't want to sleep through a time when we will receive through our angel an inspiring impulse from the spiritual world that impulse will inspire us to become much more deeply interested in everyone else than we are now this enhanced interest in our fellow human humans will not develop gradually and conveniently remaining primarily subjective on the contrary it will come in one fell swoop when the spiritual world pours into us the mysterious realization of what every person really is this is one of the changes i mentioned and it will immeasurably enrich our social life the second revelation from the world of the angels will show us irrefutably that the christ impulse leads to religious freedom among other things and that the hallmark of true christianity is that it makes absolute freedom of religion possible the third revelation is the incontrovertible realization that the world is spiritual as i've explained this is to occur in such a way that our consciousness soul forms a particular relationship to it and it is an event that will come at some point in our development because it is what the angel is preparing us for with its images in our astral body moreover the coming event is already embodied in our will as you know we can do or fail to do many things and these days many people still fail to do what can lead us toward an experience of the change indicated in a fully awake condition at the same time there are beings that have an interest in knocking us off track the aramonic and luciferic beings the luciferic beings want to help become clairvoyant in accordance with the principles of good but without free will they want to turn us into clairvoyant automatons so to speak by robbing us of our free will they also take away our ability to choose evil they want us to act based on spiritual principles but only as a sort of imitation or copy without free will to explain this we have to take into account certain mysteries of evolution as you know the luciferic beings stopped developing at a certain stage in their evolution 
and now bring alien elements into our otherwise normal development. These luciferic beings are greatly interested in preventing us from fully developing our free will because they themselves have not been able to develop it. Free will can only be attained here on earth, but those beings don't want anything to do with the earth. They are content with having gone through the Saturn, Sun and Moon evolution and that's where they want to stop rather than be part of earthly evolution. Basically, they hate our free will. They act very spiritually, but do so automatically, and this is extremely important, and they want to raise us to their level, to their spiritual level. The danger there is that if we become spiritual automatons before our consciousness soul is fully functional, we will sleep right through the revelation that is to come, the one I have described above. See, spiritual science, anthroposophy, is a system, and a system claims towards some sort of wholeness, and what it does is it creates a matrix that we then hook our thinking into and our perception into, and that's what a cult is, essentially, why it provides a sense of belonging, stability and identity, the crucial fiction structure around which we can build our lives, find purpose and meaning and <clears throat> needless to say I'm not looking to Steiner or Anthroposophy for this. Well perhaps it isn't needless to say, perhaps it's needful to say that that's not why I'm exploring Steiner, at least consciously maybe partly to uncover and undo any unconscious tendencies towards that that are still running my hardware or my software. But what is the uh, alternative then? Uh, how, how can one use Steiner's output in a way that doesn't compromise our own faculties by uh, co-opting them and incorporating them to, into an existing egregore. The answer is, well, at least what I'm going to posit as a possible answer <coughs> is by using them as a lens by which to look at areas of experience that are incompletely Comprehended. So in this case, with the Strieber, Prism Infinity, <clears throat> I could see how I could write a brief sequel appendix to Prism Infinity. It would be risky because it's high concept stuff, Steiner. So it's a kind of nail that might get stuck while driving out the previous nail because it's more or less the same shape and size uh, <coughs> just walking in the wind and the sun now the sun is good the wind is not so good <coughs> um, yeah risky but 
interesting to experiment with and it is that to this day there's cognitive dissonance around Stuber because I can't dismiss him the same might apply with John DeRuiter actually I think it might be similar in this regard uh, in terms of being spiritual automatons who are Lucifer, luciferically bound and uh, um, are puppets of the luciferic forces and I don't of course mean that as synonymous with evil or destructive or dark just a particular quality that is limited and limiting and uh, the thing with Whitley is that it's his it's his framing it's his delivery that is the tell his show is the tell what he shows of himself and has over the years in the process of disseminating this spiritual information spiritual science even contradicts the the apparent depth and truth of it hence I had to go seeking out these inconsistencies to find some concrete evidence that he was bullshitting well there is bullshit in Strieber and there's even lies and dissembling but there's also truth I think and uh, most essentially of all there is a uh, there's a core imbalance or a lack of integrity in what he's doing and he's integrity in its um, in a neutral sense not in its moral sense it's not integrated and it is evident in the way that Strieber himself seems kind of like a robot or an automaton or a puppet which significantly is a qualities that he himself described of the visitors his experiences of them in, in the movie communion they, uh, well they look like puppets because it's bad special effects but also they're they're revealed as kind of masked as kind of uh, um, just devices to conceal something else which would be consistent with a human element manipulating perception but uh, also with an extra dimensional one that wasn't primarily physical as in spirits of darkness if you will Steiner's talking about spheric beings aromantic beings etc who uh, zeroed in on Whitley as a a useful tool on their agendas and uh, thereby generated a matrix of information belief that uh, 
is spiritually, if you will, profound, that corresponds with spiritual truths and is somewhat transcendental, connecting to the realm of the dead, for example, and other things. I mean, a lot of the key is compatible with Steiner's spiritual science, I think, albeit also with Scientology. But in such a way that autonomy is removed from the equation, there's no freedom in it. Hence, Strieber's become a kind of lifeless puppet of these these memes, a deliverer. And uh, ironically, perhaps tellingly, this is also in Strieber's crucial fictions themselves that uh, at least it's in the law of the grace anyway that they don't have free will and uh, that uh, they need us to rediscover free will to, to get free it's a bit of a mishmash, but because Strieber's version is less theological and more science fictional, and then it's more about they're in an evolutionary dead end. But he also talks about how they can see outside of time, and so there's, there's no freedom in that prisoner of infinity thing. Uh, so, um, yes, this idea that. The Luciferic beings hate us for our freedom, which of course is, is echoed by the narrative around the Islam terrorists and Al Qaeda and whatnot of the West. They hate our freedom, and so they are wanting to imprison us in a similar way that they are imprisoned, albeit with the best intentions in the world. I would say that that macro-narrative, which has many ramifications and layers and variations from mythical to political to scientific and fictional, and we have demons and fallen angels and greys and, and uh, Islam terrorists, etc., etc., can all be crunched down into a single microcosmic case with, with the Strieber that he's ostensibly preaching freedom and spiritual autonomy, but what happens if you enter into that matrix of belief is you become a spiritual automaton. And I think uh, John DeRusser is another example of it. So anyway, all that was just to illustrate a way to use and apply some of this information in a way that, or so as to make something more coherent than it was before, to help me to understand better my own experiences with Strieva, with Deruta. And because it's a complementary process, that thereby roots Steiner's teaching, his clairvoyant information, it roots it in something experiential, and it transforms it it becomes uh, 
a lived experience of truth potentially, I'm not saying that this just happened but potentially it could be happening um, if, if there are sort of hooks and levers that are being dissolved through this increased coherence seeing of my own uh, enmeshment with egregores, matrices out there Strieber, Deruta, Crowley, Castaneda and Steiner but not really Steiner because he's the nail that's driving out the old nail but potentially Steiner all of them, whatever it is for you can you use the supplier to understand the ways in which your spiritual autonomy has been stolen from you under the guise of setting you free particular, if the angels had to do their work in our etheric body and our physical body while we're sleeping, that is, they would have to work in our absence, three things will occur in humanity's development. First of all, as the angels work in our sleeping body, in the absence of our astral body and I, 
a certain instinctive power will be created. And we will simply find it there when we wake up in the morning. In other words, we'll simply be given certain instinctive insights rather than having to attain them through our freedom. What we find as we wake up every morning will be instinct rather than being based on our free consciousness. These instinctive insights are indeed part of our development and are connected to the mysteries of conception and birth, to our whole sexual life. They become dangerous and harmful when we receive them as a result of the above-described refusal to wake up to the angel's work in our astral body. What I can tell you is that if human development takes the turn described above, then certain sexual instincts will emerge and gain ground, not in a beneficial or useful way in our waking clear consciousness, but in a destructive way as pure instincts. These instincts will not only sidetrack us, they will also influence our social structures, in particular what will then enter our bloodstream as a result of our sexual life will keep us from developing any kind of fellowship on earth. Instead, these instincts would goad us at all times into rebelling against fellowship, a rebellion that would be purely instinctual. So what Rudolf is saying there would seem to have to do with the way in which we receive truth, knowledge, experience that he's attributing to angelic intervention whether we receive it consciously or unconsciously and he also mentioned the element of thinking the bridge of thinking between the animal and the angelic realm earlier on so what I'm trying to formulate now is again the correlation with what Dave Ashana has been talking about in terms of how truth must be experienced bodily to to land to be something that uh, is meaningful, truly meaningful, as opposed to it just being mental information, facts, uh, statistics, etc., etc., more temporally based, um, and. So it would seem as though there's a spectrum here. One is we can receive knowledge at a purely mental level, such as potentially Rudy's spiritual science, where he's talking about these supposed um, spiritual facts around angelic beings and astral bodies and images and so on, uh, specifically now sexuality and instincts. And then there's the purely bodily level, uh, where it just goes straight into the body and it becomes instinct. Now, the correct way would appear to be a combination of both, whereby it seems as though there are dangers and uh, pitfalls in, in at either end of this extreme if we simply formulate something mentally and understand it mentally as information then it may never become real for us and we may get lost in these conceptual realms, become top-heavy and capsized from too much occult knowledge, Icarus syndrome, etc. On the other hand, if we're completely asleep and oblivious, we'll still receive the download, but it will simply go into us at an instinctual level. So we won't have any free will, Uh, we won't have any autonomy, we won't 
be able to bring our own consciousness, our own I, as Steiner calls it, our own sentience as beings, to the <coughs> process of being programmed, let's say, or being guided more positively by whatever we want to call this, the transmission, let's say, in, in Dave's terms, the angelic uh, signals. Uh, and so what he's formulating here is when this happens, we don't necessarily become top-heavy, we, we become um, ensconced in unconscious, instinctive and primal behaviours, specifically around our sexuality. And I wanted to include this passage because it seems to me that we are seeing an advanced stage of this process in our culture in which sexuality is becoming more and more uninhibited and unrestricted while at the same time becoming more and more debased. It's not being refined, it's not being transubstantiated, which would be the optimal condition, I think, back to the bees, that to to fully access and harness our sexuality would be to raise it up from the animal realms to the angelic through the element of free will, of conscious uh, choice towards goodness that human beings are exclusively perhaps able to make. That's the optimal arrangement. And that, well, we don't really know what that looks like. It wouldn't be some castrati, self-adulating monk denying his sexuality, uh, but nor would it be some uh, polymorph polymorphously perverted Havelock, Ellis, Kinsey-esque, Crowley-esque uh, ubermensch who just fucks everything that moves but acts like a baby uh, in state of rage and uh, madness a la Frank Booth I got a bit mm, brain frozen by that <laughs> the width of that particular gulf and spectrum um, yeah so at neither end of those extremes is a positive expression of the libido uh, and what we're seeing culturally is perhaps it's a combination of both but it seems to be more towards the Crowley end of the spectrum which is the uh, culturally co-opted pseudo-liberation of libido also Bhagwan Rajneesh and Osho has talked about in a recent podcast um, that is unconsciously occurring and that is proliferating in endless variations of deviated sexual impulses that are attempting to transform and transcend the body and the animal realm but doing it in such an unconscious way that in fact it's going in the opposite direction and generating behaviours that are more bestial uh, more 
destructive than anything in the animal kingdom. So, for example, cannibalism uh, is a fetish that is being advocated by Cosmopolitan. I read recently, as long as it's consensual and just fantasy-based. So, okay, admittedly, it's not prescribing eating people yet, but it's saying that it's perfectly healthy as a consensual fantasy. Uh, just to use an extreme example, and related, Richard Dawkins has also advocated cannibalism via synthetic human meat as a way to banish one more taboo because in order to be free we need to get rid of all religious taboos uh, the assumption being that any kind of moral injunction comes from religion uh, and that a truly free individual would have no moral compunction about eating human flesh as long as it was consensual and or artificial um, so that's just one example but of course there are many others and if I were to name them I would risk uh, veering very rapidly into the realms of extreme political incorrectness but I think you can use your imagination and your observation and find your own examples of the ways in which human sexuality has exploded in um, let's say a clusterfuck of variations, lifestyle choices, of paraphilias and of uh, dysphorias and dysmorphias and morphogenesis and so on and so on etc and so forth. Uh, apparently, possibly anyway, this is what Steiner is referring to in terms of the angelic influence uh, being denied any kind of conscious cooperative collaborative outlet. Natural scientists' response to the emergence of these instincts will be to say that this development was inevitable and an absolute necessity, that it is simply inherent in human evolution. That is why the natural sciences cannot warn us about such things or tell us much about them. After all, whether human beings turn into angels or devils, the natural sciences would have an explanation in either case, for to them everything happens as a result of what precedes it. There you have the great wisdom of explanation based on causality. The natural sciences will not even notice the event I've described here today, because they will naturally come an absolute necessity that people become near devils because of their sexual instincts. The second consequence that will follow from the work that will cause changes in the angels is an instinctive but detrimental knowledge of certain remedies. Indeed, everything related to medicine will get a tremendous boost in the materialistic sense. People will instinctively perceive the healing properties of certain substances and certain activities and will do great harm with that but they will call the harm they do useful and beneficial. As a result, people will call the silk sick healthy, for they will realize that then they can get involved in certain activities, perform certain actions that they will enjoy. Indeed, people will enjoy doing what is unwholesome. The third consequence of the above-described turn in human development will be that we come to know certain forces that can easily be manipulated to unleash vast mechanical power over the whole world. 
Simply harmonizing certain vibrations can release tremendous powers. As a result, we will be able to instinctively exert some control over the realm of mechanics and machines, and then technology as a whole will be on dangerous ground. Our egotism will be pleased with this development and find it useful. It would be a rough awakening indeed. We would delight in the expansion of our instinctive knowledge of the healing properties of certain substances and processes. We would enjoy living out our sexual instincts gone awry, and we would praise particularly this last aberration as an exceptionally fine form of the superhuman and of impartiality and tolerance. Cue the social justice uber warrior. Which else has come to mind? In a sense, what is ugly would become beautiful for us, and vice versa. And we would not even notice this, because it would appear to us as an absolute necessity, as the way things must be. Nevertheless, we would be off our true course, which has been prescribed for us even in regard to our own inner nature. There's a passage in uh, 16 Maps of Hell that this brings to mind. It's from page 356. The confusion between reality, fantasy and staged acts in which the two coexist inextricably including acts of torture, rape and murder, is both symptomatic and causative of an erosion of our desire to distinguish between these things. In the age of the deep fake, it not only seems futile to question what's real, it becomes irrelevant. By the same token, when everything is permitted, when a loss of reality leads to a deficit in empathy and increase in cruelty, it is more and more tempting to believe that nothing is true. And through this swirling chaos, glides the idealized selfie of the superhero, his, her, hard body glistening with the fluids of former conquests. The ascension of the infantilized superego, whose shadow is the fully empowered, sexually insatiable and infinitely engorging id monster, gives a whole new meaning to baby boomer. With Frank Booth again. In spiritual science, we try to rise again from this realization that with every one of our statements we're expressing an untruth by adopting the method I've often described for you. As I've said before, in spiritual science what matters is not so much what is said, but rather how it is said. After all, what we say would also be subject to the feeling of powerlessness. You can see for yourself what I mean when you trace in my lectures and even in my writings how every topic is described from more than one viewpoint, how everything is presented from various angles, because only then can we come close to understanding these topics. If you think that the words themselves are more than a kind of eurythmy, you are very much mistaken. Words are really nothing more than eurythmy carried out by the larynx with the help of the air. They are essentially merely gestures, except that they're not made with hands and feet, but with the larynx instead. Thus, we must realize that in speaking, we are merely gesturing toward something, and to develop the right relationship to truth, we must understand every word as a gesture toward what we want to express. That is, our words are gestures, pointers, or signs, and that is also what Eurythmy teaches us. 
Eurythmy essentially turns the whole person into a larynx, so that we express with our whole body what normally only the larynx expresses. Thus in Eurythmy we experience firsthand that even when we speak with sounds we're really only making gestures. For example, when we say the words father or mother in general, we can only express ourselves truthfully if the other person, our dialogue partner, lives as deeply in the same social element as we do and thus understands our gesture. We rise again from the powerlessness we can feel regarding language. We are resurrected from that powerlessness and overcome it. Only when we understand that in the moment we open our mouth to speak, we must already be Christian. What has become of words, of the Logos, in the course of history, can be understood only if we reconnect the Logos with Christ. That is, we must realize that as our body becomes the vehicle of speech, it forces the truth downward, and as a result part of it dies on our lips. We can make it come to life again in Christ when we understand that we must spiritualize it. That is, mentally in our thinking we must include the spirit rather than taking in only the words as such. This is what we must learn, my dear friends. The time is coming when we will have to move away from merely looking at the literal verbatim meaning of what appears before our soul and instead must consider the person who is saying this or that. That is, we must focus not on the outer physical personality, but rather on the whole human spiritual context. Accordingly, this must be our answer to the question of how to find Christ. For Christ cannot be found by means of any strange wool-gathering or through convenient mysticism. We can find Christ only if we have the courage to take our place in the midst of life. And that means that we must also feel the above-mentioned powerlessness in regard to language, powerlessness that our body has brought upon us because it has become the bearer of speech. That experience of powerlessness must be followed by the resurrection of the Spirit in the Word. That's the answer. It's not just a matter of the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In quotes. Another sentence that has often been misunderstood. Instead, it's already the sound that kills. And for the Spirit to give life again, we must connect our concrete, individual experience to Christ and the mystery of Golgotha. Thus, the first step to finding Christ is this. Seek. But not just by looking for the meaning of pretty words here and there. That's all people are used to these days. Instead, we must seek the human context, looking at how the words emerge out of the place they are spoken from. This will become increasingly important in the future. In the beginning was the turd. The turd was not God, and the turd was not with God, but it came anyway. And the word was the turd. The word is uh, something that we excrete. It's a product. We produce it from our orifices. Out it comes, and most of the time it leaves a bit of a stinky residue. I was going to let Rudolph have the last word on the podcast this week, but 
so I felt that that wouldn't be satisfactory. Uh, so more words will follow Rudolph's words about the the uh, emasculating influence of words how when we become excretors of verbiage we become disempowered and Christ, Logos the Word who was there in the beginning and who will be there in the end the Alpha and the Omega was crucified perhaps to embody, incarnate through enactment the trajectory of the word from the physical incarnation of the human form which is the true word of the Lord to the crucified body which is the the word as it becomes subject to the accuser, the, the state, the influence of matter becomes uh, the victim of matter. Mother bonded to the cross. That's not quite right, that, but. These are only words. I did want to say uh, a word about your rhythmy, because what Steiner is saying here at the end is that words are gestures that can represent the truth insofar as they are expressions of the body which is what Eurythmy is, I looked it up not just a <coughs> popular English band in the 80s led by Annie Lennox and the weaselly beardy guy that nobody knows the name of uh, but a, a healing practice that Steiner developed I don't know to what extent, looks a bit like avant-garde thing. It's the, it's dance essentially, but it's different. Or it's more or less than dance. In that it's the natural movement, the, the natural expression of the human body through movement. Perhaps you could even say expression of the soul through the movement of the body. Perhaps dance without music, dance that is its own music, without sound. And uh, of course, being crucified would be the opposite of that. There's no moving when you're pinned to a cross, there's no eurythmy. It would be the attempt of the state to to uh, crush, confine, enslave, oppress the incarnation, the word of God, by nailing it to wood with metal. Ironic then that uh, 
the Bible, the supposed literal word of God, as a piece of literature, as a, a, a book, an object, is what we're left with. But where the disease is there, seek the cure. So these words These words They are like a trail of crumbs or a thread that uh, unwinds behind me as, as we venture into the labyrinth of matter where the minotaur is the original wound they are essential to providing us with the courage, the commitment, the audacity, the confidence to proceed into the unknown. Without words, without the power of thought, we wouldn't be able to venture. It would be too terrifying, be too confusing, too disorienting. The crumbs that we leave behind us give us the assurance that we will find our way out and indeed they are our way out but in a way it's moot because when we get to the centre of the labyrinth and face the minotaur whatever happens after that is unknown and we won't be the same so there's no guarantee we'll be emerging or that if we are we'll need that trail of crumbs but we do need the assurance that they provide on the way in whether we will still use language in any shape or form when we are whole is, is moot because even if we do it will be in a very very different way when we've uh, regained the wholeness, the integrity of all our parts then our body our bodies are eurythmically aligned with the current of creation and with their own internal life force then our every gesture, every movement our very existence will be transmission as it is in fact if we would only notice the transmission of the formless and the ineffable into, into matter through, through form in movement the movement of form it's really not the form itself that uh, allows the divine to incarnate but the movement that the form can create so we're not uh, so much the word as the means by which the word is etched upon existence every movement that we make that's a police song uh, leaves traces these traces we write our lives upon the book of light by living but the deeds are not what we think they are they're not uh, inscribed on culture as artifacts and products etchings upon 
the uh, walls of history, but uh, something closer to seeds that are sown, uh, pollen that comes off our wings as we beat them, and that uh, fertilizes flowers to come. Really, there's, anyway, it's beyond uh, need to know or our capacity to know. Perhaps a little bit poetical, trying to continue to use the words because it's a podcast after all, uh, while at the same time leaving the map of syntax that uh, crucifies words into a specific sentence, gives them a sentence, indeed convicts them to a lifetime sentence of specific meanings, limitations of uh, unearthly origin. The Rudolf Steiner Enterprise, as far as I can see, currently is verging on, nearing, veering towards the synthesis Horsley of Shana, Rudolf Steiner Ensemble. A pale horse. And on that horse, the rider has no name. Somehow I couldn't help but go there. Don't blame me, don't blame the messenger. Uh, a synthesis, anyway, of perspectives that I hope will bridge a number of things, including uh, a bridge between the essence of Steiner, what he had to deliver, the transmission, and the edifices of Goetheana and Anthroposophy that he collaborated in building Waldorf, all the rest of it, which is uh, really just the crust on, on the on the pie, protecting, keeping warm the inner ingredients, which is where the real tasty stuff is. So, uh, yes, in the next few weeks I'm going to attempt to see if it's possible to to stitch this stuff together into, or to bake it into a larger project, which is the Galician... uh, restoration of ancestral sentience settlement I hope to establish so look out for a future blog post that maybe starts to bring all of this into a real world context here and now what is happening why all of these words are needed to create a beat or a drum roll or a bugle call to rally the cells within us into movement, into motion, into murmuration, so that we can migrate in the wholesome direction, wholly into the good and away from this burning world. Yes, somebody come.
is it for today. Hopefully that was reasonably executed and you have enjoyed this podcast. Come join the interactive stuff because passive listening to this podcast will only get you so far and no further. So uh, come join the fun at the affinity groups, the various meetups that I'm having and will have, uh, the men's group on Tuesday, etc., etc., etc. In a word, send me a line, send me an email, and invite yourself into the warm and out of the cold behind that crumbling fourth wall. Also, for those listeners who were not able to download or listen to the last exploration of Steiner, we need to talk about Lucifer. I'll include a, another version of the audio at this post. Uh, hopefully it will work better for you. Yeah, you may be gone far away from here In the sun may shine bright out the sky might be clear Next mind when I do our chick blood.